about how is this helping develop people's life skills, how are we providing them with life opportunities and experiences that they can't get without being in sport. And I just found that I got to a point in my career where it wasn't able to do that enough. So welcome to Brave Bold Brilliant Podcast. I'm here today with Sarah Jones, who is the Director of the Prince's Trust here in Wales. Sarah, nice to see you. Great to see you. Welcome back to your second home. <laughs> I know. I'm a regular here. I just make a brew, you know, help myself. And you, it's taken a while for us to get this in the diary, <laughs> hasn't it, Sarah? It has. Yeah, you've been trying to pin me down for about 12 months, I think. So uh, finally, in the hot seat. Very tenacious, very tenacious. But um, and, and you were saying earlier, before we press record, that you hate doing <laughs> when it comes to talking about yourself camera and a mic you find it quite uncomfortable but when you stand on stage with a lectern in front of hundreds of thousands of people you're very comfortable yeah strange mix it is a strange yeah. strange mix so what, why do you think that is i don't really know to be honest i think um I mean, look, you know, my family and friends will tell you if somebody's trying to take a picture of me, I will quite happily move out of the way. Um, but, but my personality, I'm quite extroverted, so I, I don't know what it is. I just don't like looking at pictures of myself. I don't like hearing myself talk. Um, but uh, so, but as, so as soon as you put a camera and a microphone in the mix, I just sort of, yeah, start to feel a bit more uncomfortable. But, uh, you know, it's part of what I do. I have to do it. And, you know, on a, you know when I have to do these things, you know, whether it's you know, BBC Wales or, or whatever it is, um, you know, I kind of put myself in those positions, but I don't enjoy it in the slightest. <laughs> well, I'm going to try and not make this such a painful experience for you. You know, it's supposed to be joyful and useful. Just think about all the uh, great messages you're going to share that's going to help people. And that, that'll be good. So, so listen, the Prince's Trust, you've kind of come full circle with your role as director. Mm. Um, and I know a little bit about your kind of personal story and what have you. But it is very meaningful as an organisation for you, isn't it? Linked to kind of your early starting life. So can we start there, Sarah, just to just to kind of bring it to life and then we'll talk all about your amazing career in sport and now in the charity world and what have you so yeah early early years and how does the Prince's Trust sort of hold such meaning for you yeah sure so early years grew up in uh, Blackwood in South Wales um, went to Ken Forest Junior School went to Blackwood Comprehensive School um, and uh, at the age of eight I think it was somebody said to my mum oh, does Sarah want to go and play short tennis which is now known as mini tennis and things like that in in Risca Leisure Centre and apparently she asked me, I said, yeah, okay. Um, and I could just I could just play the sport. This was naturally talented. Don't, you know, we don't know where the talent came from. Nobody else in my family played tennis or did any kind of sport. Um, and, uh, and, and so within about, I think about two or three weeks, I won the under eights Welsh Junior Mini Tennis Championships. Uh, I didn't even know to score. I remember shaking hands with somebody. It's one of my earliest memories actually, shaking hands and smiling because I had a great time and then asking the person that was scoring for us whether I'd won. <laughs> so, <laughs> I didn't even know, I was like, oh yay, well done um, And then I got sort of talent spotted through various different age groups and I ended up having a career in tennis that went through every junior age group into a senior playing for playing for Wales, played for the, the combined British Universities team which meant I got to play on some of the hallowed turf in Wimbledon and um, just, you know, travelled the world competing and uh, played, you know, ITF events and, you know, I got, I'm glad, well, this is pre, uh, pre-digital era, actually, so there's hardly any images, 
hence my serious <laughs> point. Um, but you know, I, I was beating consistently beating players sort of in the top three hundred in the world, and, um, and and I just loved it. I just had a natural talent for it, and the link to that. I mean, there's you know, growing up in the the South Wales Valleys is you know is, is challenging. Mm. You know, there's not loads of opportunities. I'm, I come from a very very loving family. Um, without their support, you know, without my mum, dad, and the patience of my older brother. Uh, you know, to travel me and sort of you know, ferry me around the UK and, uh, and elsewhere playing tournaments, etc. Uh, I'll be eternally grateful to them because it, it changed my, my outlook on life and what was possible. So I have a, a lot to thank sport for. Um, <clears throat> but equally, my, my journey was helped by the Prince's Trust. So when I was uh, 16, I wrote to the Prince's Trust and, and asked for some financial support because I'd been offered the chance to go to America to train at Nick Bollettieri's Tennis Academy. And for those of you that know tennis, you know, that was kind of, probably still is, you know, one of the, the hallowed turfs of, of training uh, out in, in Florida. So, um, and the, the, the Prince's Trust responded and, and supported me with what we, we still do today, which are called Development Awards, which I'm very passionate about. Uh, you know, it was 250 pounds, you know, not massive in the grand scheme of things, but back then that was quite a lot of money. And what that did was enable me to to go abroad and and go and sort of live my dream essentially of going and training at the at the academy and um, and what what it did was it was the fact that somebody somewhere who'd never met me and were outside of my parents and my supportive network that said I think this kid's got talent let's 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 take a chance there's some potential here um, and. And that support allowed me to go off and live my dream, which basically changed my life and changed my career trajectory as well. So for me, the Prince's Trust, I always said at some point I wanted to be able to give back to the Prince's Trust. And I kept the letter. I should have brought it with me, actually. I kept the letter of the offer of the £250. Uh, and uh, you, you remember you had those cork boards when you were a kid with the pins. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's got loads of pinholes in it where I've obviously just moved it around the board, but I still have that letter because it meant so much to me then and it still does now and it was one of my main motivators when this role became available uh it was kind of uh that full circle moment where i thought this is this is it and i've been doing some guest speaker slots etc as an ambassador for the trust in terms of raising the profile in wales and talking about my personal journey um but uh, to to be able to come back in in this role now as director for wales is uh it was was a dream come true two years ago it really was you know it was this is my opportunity to, to properly give back and, and help young people that you know come from a background like myself but also but come from far worse situations than, than i came from i'm very aware that i came from a supportive family network a lot of the young people that we work with don't have don't mm -hmm. have that and you know, if, if there were challenges for me, then the challenges for these young people are even greater. So I've always been driven by what am I doing to help other people? That's always been my intrinsic driver. And, you know, initially that was in sport. You know, so I, you know, I was the chief exec of Wales Netball. And for me, the purpose of that was to drive a vehicle to help people, mainly women and girls in that, in that sport. Um, have an opportunity to socialise, have fun, you know, engage in a community. It wasn't necessarily about the elite side of things for me. It was always about how is this helping develop people's life skills? How are we providing them with life opportunities and experiences that they can't get without being in sport? And I just found that I got to a point in my career where it wasn't able to do that enough because that's not what the sole purpose of a national governing body is. There's the elite element as well in terms of medal potential, etc., and driving success that way. So. 
to step out of sport into a charity. It was a big move for me two years ago um, and, and, and quite a brave move, I think, given you know, where I am in my career. And, uh, but it was 100% the right thing for me to do at, the, at that time, one, because of the organisation and my personal connection with it, but also the, uh, the ability to really drive positive change and help young people across Wales that really need our help the most. Yeah, and it, it's fantastic. And you, you know, you have such great energy, Sarah. Yeah, you, you really do. And you know, because you're very real, you're very humble. You've had enormous success professionally. You know, in the world of sports and now charity sector. But nonetheless, you're you're you don't let any of that go to your head. I don't think, from what I can see, so pretty humble. Thank you. <laughs> but when when you were when you were um, in the world of sports and you were playing tennis at that mm. level. How does the ego and the competitive element play out in real terms? So I'm saying on the one hand now, I see you very grounded, very kind of together. But how, how is that in a competitive environment of sport where it's all about winning? It's all about number one or, number, you know, whatever, how far you can get. Um, and, and, and how does that impact you as an individual, do you think? I think there's good and bad for it um, I think look I am a very a very driven individual I always have been um, and I don't know whether that's just how I was born or whether that's just uh, you know what I've learned you know coming from maybe a more difficult background and you know you kind of become a bit more resilient um, but I don't I, I've never I think sport particularly individual sport you are very self-reliant yes you have your coach or whatever but but ultimately, particularly when you're in the early stages of a career in an individual sport, success is yours, failure is also yours. Uh, and you are the only person that can be held accountable and responsible for either of those things. Mm. Uh, and it's how you uh, respond to those in whatever given situation and whatever age you are. You know, and there were different responses I had at different ages to each of those situations. But I think intrinsically then that makes you who you are and it builds your character. So. Uh, sport I have a huge amount to be incredibly thankful for. I think it's interesting when you you then work in a space that isn't uh, sport and you aren't surrounded by sports people that are you know successful or have the elite sport mindset uh, where it's probably one of the biggest differences I've noticed actually in working from sports and then moving into the charity sector is and I don't mean this in a bad way it's the level of resilience that people have and the level of drive to succeed uh, whereas you know, sport, it's all about marginal gains. How do we do that better? How do we do it quicker? How do I? How do I? What, how many more reps of those do I need to do to to really excel and be the best that I can be? And then there's there is the same intent and the same passion, such passion in in the charity sector for for what people do, but sometimes it's a little bit sort of flip floppy as well. You know that mm. that that killer instinct. That um, it's probably not the right word, the killer instinct, but it's the the real um, ability to really refine and go, that's what we need to do more. We really need to push that extra bit in this space to really gain the success that we want. There's, there's a real difference in, in that space. Neither is right or wrong. And I think, I think I'm a better leader now for having been in the trust for two years in terms of getting a far better balance. And I think perspective is, uh, is really, really important in terms of how you make decisions, how you respond to people. And I think sport, um, gives you the ability to really flip skills in from one thing to the other um, and uh, but to, it gives you a level of resilience that I'm not sure any other sector can, can give you mm. and, and actually you, you know you make an interesting point you've been in the role pretty much nearly two years yeah, last week yeah, yeah. so 
congratulations, happy <laughs> anniversary, happy anniversary. Um, but, but that discipline and that razor light focus and mm. that drive, how have you then applied that, do you think, in the role here as director of Princess Trust in Wales? Mm. And how have you got that balance? Um, and has that shifted from when you first came in, new to role, yeah. all shiny and excited, and then two <laughs> years in? So yeah, how have you actually applied that in, in the right way, do you think? Yeah, I think it took a while. I think it took a while. And I think my, my team, I have a great leadership team here. Um, and it took a while where they were all kind of going, this, this woman's slightly mad, you know. I was like, well, how do we do that better? How do we get more young people? You know, we should be able to work with more young people than... than... And so there was a level of me needed to understand the process that works within the charity as to, well, okay, in order for us to work with these young people here, we need to do all of these things first. And then it was, we just, we just need to, you know, we just need to go, come on. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and actually going, actually, Sarah, there's, there's a whole load of things here we need to understand about uh, those young people that need more individualised support, those that need more sort of handholding, or more, and those that are, are, are easier and able to kind of get on and do things, you know, a little bit more independently. And, and the whole myriad of support mechanisms that are needed within that. So for me, there's been a level of shifting, um, accountability, accepting accountability, uh, and really being part of a cohesive team unit. I think that was something that was slightly lacking here that, that isn't now. Um, and actually that we're all moving towards a collective goal. Where do you sit within that? And how do we do that? Because ultimately, if we do it really well, we affect positively more young people mm -hmm. uh, and really affect the, the lives of those young people. So for me, it's been about giving real clarity on direction, uh, real focus on we need to do this together it's a team a team approach and I think they were they were they were good they were good in that anyway but it's just the refinement of that and actually being able to go actually we got that wrong and be accountable and be okay with that and go, okay well let's just do it better next time mm. um, so there's been I've learned a lot in my tears of my team that I think they've really helped me be a better a better leader a better decision maker uh, and I also think I've Hopefully, they might tell you different later. Uh, just uh, in terms of that real clarity and that it doesn't matter if we've got it wrong, just go again, go again, go again. And that real consistency and that resilience piece I was talking about that you mm -hmm. get from sport of it doesn't matter how many times you get knocked down, it's how you get back up that's a test of your character and how you then respond to those uh, situations, whatever those mm -hmm. might, might be. So um, I think I've given them a different uh, lens, shall we say, in, in that space as well. Yeah, I mean, you make that, as you're talking, a lot of this is resonating with me because I've certainly had times during my my career where I've kind of, I'm so ambitious and I always want to do it for the right yeah. reasons, but, yes. but then it's hard because not everyone is going to work at the same pace, not everyone's going to have the same objectives as you, so trying to bring the team and all the stakeholders with you and yeah. being aware of the sharp elbows at times is, is something that I've had to kind of personally learn. I mean, when I work with organisations today, I, and, and it is aligned with the brand actually, I always say there's three parts to whether you're running a charity, running a business, or a sports, you know, in the world of sports. Mm. Brave, leading yourself, and how you can be the best leader. Bold, leading the organisation, the business, the strategy, and all of that kind of good stuff. And then brilliant is the teams, you know, that's like bringing the team together, high performance. Yeah. So so those three elements. So leading yourself then, mm. that, that side of it, and, and how you've kind of adapted and changed. What do you think has made, well, you've talked about sport and you've talked about the, the synergy between sport and the charity sector. What do you think have been the key things that has helped you develop as a leader outside of 
kind of doing the do, if you like, <laughs> being on the ground. You know, are there other things that have helped you, whether it's mentors, whether it's coaches, whether it's personal development, whether it's looking after your own well-being, you know, because there's a lot around being the best version mm -hmm. of yourself as a leader. It's not just doing the work and having having the team there, but any other things that have helped you sort of step up, do you think, and, and be a better version of yourself? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I've, I've got mentors, I've got, or I've got a coach. I've actually never had that. And I think it's probably something that I should have had and probably should have now. It's possibly something I need to, to look at, but I've never really, I've never really found that person that I've kind of gone, yeah, I, I will have, I'd like to have these conversations mm -hmm. with you. I'm a very private person, so I find it quite difficult sometimes to kind of just talk about things naturally and freely that, that potentially can affect me personally. So I've never had that sort of mental coach role to kind of fall back on to, to kind of guide and steer. I've, I've very much made decisions sort of in my own space and through mm -hmm. sort of my family network that, that are around me. So. I've always found that interesting because it's an area that I think I would really benefit from, but I'm, I'm just, I'm just not, it's just not happened. Mm. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but it is yeah. something that's sort of in, in my mind. Um, I think some of the things for me is I'm, I like to learn, um, not your traditional learning. I mean, I, I was good in school, you know, I, I, you know my brother, straight H student, I'm a two A's, three B's, five C's kind of person, but, um, <clears throat> you know, there's a, there's a whole level of learning that that if I go into something new, I want I want to learn. I want to know as much as I can, you know. And I don't want to be the expert. There will always be people that know more more than I do, and I'm really aware of that. But it's that that continual education and learning for me to to really grow into whatever space I'm in. And you know, I'd say the other thing that has probably helped helped me is the is, is sort of the the health side of things. So. Mm. Um, you know, being in sport all my life, you know, having the physical outlet, in, whether that was playing tennis or whether it was swimming or whatever it was, enabled to keep sort of that healthy mind, healthy body, you know, all yeah, of those yeah. things or the other way around. Um, you know, it, that, that for me is really important. Um, and that's something I've really struggled with over the progressively over the last 10 to 15 years with a really severe back injury, um, the joy of sport. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think the last... 12 months in particular have been particularly difficult for me in that journey having had spinal surgery in, in February so that bit I've had to really shift my thinking in terms of okay how do I one keep mentally sane during that period um, of, of you know quite possibly one of the roughest years of my life this year um, for somebody that's physically active is you know mentally quite strong how, how and it, it challenged me beyond beyond anything mm. I've sort of experienced before so you know that ability to shift my thinking and be okay with where I was at that point in time um, was was quite difficult to start off with. But I actually started start to say, okay, I want I want future Sarah in twelve months' time. We're at ten months at the moment, you know, to to thank the work that this Sarah is currently doing. And I've had that in my mind since pretty much day one of since the surgery to actually get myself in the right mindset that I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do. I'm going to find it really frustrating but be okay with that. Yeah. Uh, and then just gradually, you know, keep doing the, the rehab, keep doing, you know, which I've done every single morning, religiously for 10 months, you know, I've now started swimming and you know, all of those things that, that are part of the journey and being, allowing myself to be okay with where I am in my journey at the moment, you know, mm -hmm. and not, not still expecting myself to be, you know, 
off, I'm going to say running marathons, I've never run a marathon in my life, um, but you know, that, yeah. that kind of mentality that you have as a sports person mm -hmm. uh, to continually push yourself for better. I've had to shift that space over the last 12 months to it's okay with where you are right now. Yeah, and, and it is about being kind to yourself, isn't mm -hmm. it, in those situations? Yeah. You know, I think, I think you know, if you're an ambitious person, if you're a competitive person, you want to win, you want the best of your teams, for all the people that you serve, etc. you know, it, it's, it's very hard to actually go, well, no, hang on a minute, slow down, be okay with yeah. this phase. I am good enough, I've just got to work through this and what comes out the other side yeah. will also be good enough. But it's hard because we often beat ourselves up, don't we? We're yeah. not doing enough, we're not doing it fast enough. And, and I think it is. it must have been a very, very challenging year for you. Mm. Um, it's amazing I'm still engaged, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, relationships, I mean, that's it. Relationships, yeah. they, take, they take a bashing. Yeah, yeah. They really do. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the injury and you've had, you said mm. 10 years of having had yeah. you know sort of some challenges with, mm. with with your back was it that side of things that made you shift out of sport you know because because that journey was you know you were on a trajectory in the world of tennis mm. and then you shifted into the coaching for for Wales what what was the what was that bit in between that kind of made the shift was it was it the the physical side of things that meant you weren't going to carry on in the world of tennis or mm. what was the was there an event yeah, it's, it's, it is two things, really. Yeah. And I've never really properly reflected on this, so it's a, another good question. So I think the first thing was physically, my body just went, yeah, no, this is this is just not, you can't carry on doing this. So, you know, I remember I, I was playing, a, I, think it was, I think it was actually the, what we called Senior Welsh, which was the Welsh International event in Swansea, and I, I hit a serve and I tore all the ligaments and tendons down, this, down here and I chipped off a bit of bone. I literally couldn't move my arm. I think I was like two games away from winning the match and I tried to play and I just, you know, this, this wasn't doing anything. So I did that and then I've had recurring back injuries then since, uh, probably since the age of 14, that have just progressively got worse. So for me, there was a, a point where I was able to go into the coaching side, which I loved, and you know I got to travel and see the world. I worked for an American tennis management company. I lived and worked in Dubai, in Switzerland, uh, in Palm Springs, in uh, you know Carmel in California. Absolutely amazing. I also did the high-end elite coaching here in the UK, and then I I really really loved the community grassroots stuff. Um, and my body was able to do that. That was that was fine. And but I just I, I think the second thing was that I. I don't think I was mentally tough enough, which sounds really strange given what I've already spoken about. Mm. Um, and I think I I loved what I did. I loved the sport. I just, just give me a racket of ball, happy, 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 you know. Um, but I I was and I was good. I was good. And it's probably taken me to being 44 years old to acknowledge I was actually quite good. Um, <laughs> you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Um, but but to get to the next level, there's a level of, uh, there's a different level of mental toughness and a different level of, um, I can say ruthlessness mm. that I just intrinsically don't have. And I'm okay with that now. I wasn't initially, but I just, I quite like who I am now, you know, and I'm comfortable with that. And I think I would be a very different person, mm. you know, and I think when you go into like the top hundred in the world or, you know, it's different again, to get into the top 20, it's different again. And to, to be, a you know, like a, a Serena Williams, a Djokovic, a Federer, those, they, those people are exceptional, absolutely exceptional, but their mental toughness is just extreme, you know, and, and I never, I never had that, you know, that was, wasn't there, I just loved what I did and I was just good at it, you know, and, um, and I'm, I'm comfortable to the level that I got and, you know, I kind of came back from America having, working for the American company I was working for at the time with injuries and I kind of, I was 20, 
much how old was I? 25, 26-ish, mm. around there. But yeah, I need to I need to look at something else. And that's how I then moved into sort of the more sports administrative uh, roles and then I've sort of you know wiggled my way through some really unplanned, you know, career moves <laughs> over that time, you know, and I've ended up working at uh, what was Derbyshire Sport. So I left Dubai and ended up buying a house in Derbyshire at 26, 27, however old I was, and everybody went, how'd you go from Dubai to Derbyshire? It's <laughs> like, not really sure, but I have. Um, you know, and then I ended up, my, my dad got really sick then, so uh, I ended up coming back to Wales working for the Welsh Rugby Union, and went to, uh, and headed up their safeguarding team. I went to Wales, uh, or Welsh Gymnastics, headed up the Community Development Grassroots Outreach and then became the chief exec of, of Wales Netball and uh, and that was and still is the toughest job of my career um, to date uh, in terms of that the, the, the complete uh, transformation of, of that organisation so um, yeah it's uh, there's a whole whole load of things in there. Yeah no that's fantastic I mean I want to come back to what the toughest job so I will come back <laughs> to that and then just understand why it was so tough and what how you dealt with that um, but the, the pivotal moment of sort of saying, right, okay, my, my career in tennis, I, I need to say farewell to that and move mm. on. Was that really agonising for you then, Sarah? Or was it that it had been kind of coming for quite a while and, you, you know, you'd sort of been getting your head around it, whether consciously or subconsciously? Mm. I mean, was it a traumatic decision or was it just it was the right thing to do for you at the time and you felt proud of what you'd achieved? I think it's a combination of the two, to be mm. honest. I think... Um, I think there's a lot of conversation in the world of sport around athlete transition. So when you come out of whatever yeah. sport it is, you know, and there's there's always an image that sticks in my head of a conveyor belt of, that somebody drew of athletes just falling off into a crumpled pile. You know, in terms of that post uh, post career, you know, uh, transition into normal life. You know, because yeah. you you're in an environment where you're used to somebody saying, right, this is what you eat, this is what you do, this is when you train. You do, 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 do. So there's a real structure to it. So when you kind of just go, right, I don't have that anymore. It, it leaves you in a really vulnerable place mentally mm. um, and you know back then it wasn't talked about anywhere near as much as it is now which is which is a great and there's still a lot more to do to get me wrong um, so for me I just kind of did it I'm not I'm generally not somebody that reflects too much backwards mm. yeah yeah <laughs> um, I will I will go yeah okay well that was what that was that's where we are now and I'll, I'll I generally look, look forward um, so yes it was difficult did I know it was coming yes um, and I and was it the end of a lifelong dream as a child to be a you know a tennis player? Yes, it was. But there were so many other things that that gave me that platform gave me in terms of skills and opportunities elsewhere. That had I not done that, I never would have known that I could go off and do all these other things that I've done. So I now am eternally grateful for for that path that that I took because the. The discipline that it's given uh, is you 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 can't teach it if you don't go through to an elite level in sport. It's, it's not something that you just kind of do. Well, I think I mean it's really you know this podcast. What I love is is the realness behind the role, right? Because mm. sometimes we can put ourselves out to the world. Social media, <clears> etc., doesn't help in that you know you have this perfect kind of life. And the reality is, behind the scenes and the journey is often very, very tough. We have highs, we have lows, we have failings, we have decisions to make. And, and actually, it's, I think it's really refreshing to be open and honest about, about that, because otherwise we're, we're, just not, we're just being disingenuous. So I think it's really, really refreshing that you share the journey. But what I love about this is anyone that's listening, whether you're at a turning point in your life, maybe you are in the world of sports, maybe you're in business, whatever you're doing, 
when you're at a low point or a difficult time where you think, oh my God, you know, what do I do next? Is this over? It isn't, is it? It's just the next chapter in the book. And, you know, the way that you've reinvented yourself, but taken the skills that you've learned from your early professional sporting career into coaching, then into charity, you know, it's all layering on top, isn't it? All that experience makes you who you are today. And and I think it's it's fantastic that it just shows that there isn't just one path. There's multiple journeys we can take and multiple decisions. And um, so I think that's really refreshing. So well done. Um, <laughs> now let's come back to the most difficult job you've had and why that is. Oh, so we've got long enough for this <laughs> Don't you worry, we're all good. So the most difficult job you've had, Tell me about that. Uh, yeah, chief exec of uh, what was Welsh netball, but rebranded by the time I, I left as Wales netball. So, uh, you know, a small, small to medium-sized national governing body. So the the, the lead organisation for the sport of netball in Wales. Um, <clears throat> so part publicly funded through Welsh government and Sport Wales, uh, and then uh, a membership body as well combined with that, and then obviously generating sort of commercial income streams as well. So quite a um, broad range of income streams that come in and come out of that of that organization with uh, you know the ambition to be uh, you know in the top 10 in the world as a Commonwealth country to play and compete in Commonwealth games uh, and then also to have you know a really broad base and a large base of women and girls playing the sport you know and boys now as well uh, which is great uh, you know in terms of really growing the sport across across the country mm. so I took on <clears throat> that uh, role in 2016, so January 2016, I'd done a, a six-month secondment uh, just to kind of fill a gap they'd had and then got offered the role full-time January 2016. Now, um, I was 36, uh, so my first chief exec role at 36 was the youngest chief exec in the Welsh sports system uh, and was one of probably three females. So a very difficult environment to step into, and you know, you know, I look at it, you know, as I was inexperienced as a as a, a leader in at that time. So, um, huge amount of learning. Uh, it was essentially, and I'm not saying anything that wasn't public knowledge, just to be really clear. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, it was uh, financially bankrupt, uh, in a state of uh, flux, shall we say, for want of a better word, in terms of its governance, needed drastic modernisation had lost the support of its members, uh, had lost the support of the media, which may go back to why I don't like the media. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, and it was just, you know, and the culture within the staffing structure, not great, not a healthy environment. Um, so a lot, a lot of challenges, you know, it was pretty much as low as it could have gone. I, I think they'd lost something like two or three chief execs in the space of 18 months before before naivety here jumped in when oh somebody's got to be able to fix it which was actually now when I reflect on it that naivety was probably what got me through it mm. um, in terms of I was just passionate about the fact that this was the uh, the biggest female sport in the country at that point that somebody needed to be able to fix it mm. uh, and I thought God, let, let me at it and that's kind of where I've honed my craft as it were as being a fixer mm. unintentionally um, but I I tend to not like things that are nice and stable and swishy and you know kind of just need managing. I like I like a challenge. I like to fix things and then I like to move on and leave it for somebody else to do the, the, the next bit. So um, for, for me, that role was 
um, there's no other word for it other than brutal, uh, really, really brutal, um, you know, hostile. Um, I think it's challenging when you're in a sport that's fully female. I mm. really do. That's that's a challenging space. With you know, it's it's not overly supportive space. Um, but I firmly believed in what that sport did and the power of the sport and how amazing it is. If you've ever watched elite netball, international netball, go and watch the Cardiff Dragons. They, their season kicks off shortly, actually, in, in Cardiff here. Uh, just amazing. The Super League, amazing. International netball playing at Commonwealth Games level. Those, those athletes, those women that are, a lot of them aren't full-time athletes. You know, so they're doing it in and around their day jobs just incredible absolutely incredible if you ever need to be inspired go and watch some international level netball you know or the super league just phenomenal anyway um so uh and, and i really wanted to help i was really driven by wanting to help pull this organization out of the doldrums and, and put it back on a, a, a level playing field and there was a four-year window so from january 2016 to january 2020 um the organization went from being uh well bankrupt to having, uh, I got it to a position where it had uh, six months of reserves because it didn't have any reserves. Uh, we Wales were back in the top 10 in the world from a Commonwealth perspective. The Super League franchise were at seven or eight in the league out of 10 teams, which was, you know, they kind of got off the bottom. Uh, and we'd grown the membership from around 6,000 to over 10,000. And we had 40,000 uh, children uh, playing through schools. Uh, we'd done some of the biggest commercial deals uh, that the sport had ever seen. Uh, and, and built some really solid foundations, completely modernised the board, governance structures, etc. So it was then on a much firmer, sort of solid financial footing uh, and governance footing, which, you know, is never the sexy stuff. That's not the stuff that you get the accolades <laughs> for. It's the, it's the bricks and mortar. Yeah. Um, and, but but, but it, it was challenging. There were, there were blocks every step of the way, and it did feel like uh, there were personal attacks on me. Uh, for making decisions that were very unpopular, but ultimately that organisation has a future that it didn't have before I went into that role. And you know, there were a lot of people that didn't understand that I was making decisions for the longer term. And when I say longer term, I'm talking five, ten years. I'm not talking two or three years. Mm. Uh, and it it kind of really taught me that there's not many people that can see the vision, and then put the blocks in place to actually deliver strategically to be able to, you know, to bridge the gap from A to yeah. B. Um, but it, it, you know, it taught it taught me. I was, a, I was a fully paid up member of the people pleasing club. You know, I was, you know, I was chairman of that. I think when I started that role, and I very quickly learned that uh, to be a leader in a really challenging environment. You know, and this was from one crisis to the next crisis to the next crisis to a point that actually COVID uh, was just. We were so used to being from crisis to crisis to crisis that it was just another crisis. And when I look back at it now, that's how I viewed it. It's like, oh, it's just another crisis for us to fix. It's fine. It's, you know, uh, and, and there was a level of resilience that we had in that team that allowed us to, to do what we did to get it through through COVID as well. So there's a there's a whole level of learning that you can't be a paid-up member to the people-pleasing club. You have to uh, make decisions that are going to make you unpopular, and you have to be okay with that. Uh, because as long as you're making those decisions based on this is the right thing for the long term of the business of the, of the organization uh, and it's going to be better for it it's that shorter term pain for longer term gain i think it, it is you have to be really really comfortable and confident in your decisions that they are coming from a factual place and they're coming from the right place in terms of what comes next for that sport organization and the people that that are within it i think i kind of 
I kind of liken it to a storm almost. I learned a lot that, you know, a storm, there's, there's, there's one thing that every storm has in common is that, that it passes and that you, you have, the rain comes, it sort of washes everything away, but it, what it leaves is the meaningful bit. Mm. And for me, what I learned was that, you know, you're never ever going to grow you grow because of the storm, you don't grow despite of the storm, essentially. And in those things that you learn, you can't learn on a sunny day. Mm. Uh, and that's what that organisation taught me. And, you know, I'm still very, I'm very moved from it now, but um, I'm still very keen to see how it goes. And, you know, I try to support the current chief exec as and when she, she kind of reaches out. But, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot that happened in, in that space that affected me personally. I really, really had to challenge my sanity at points mm. um, because it just it got quite nasty at stages. So I'm incredibly proud of what where that organisation ended up, and I'm actually now two years on, incredibly proud of how I conducted myself during um, some very, very challenging conversations. Mm. Gosh, it sounds like it was a real roller coaster. Mm, it was, yeah. Um, and and you know you make a very important point. One, it can be really lonely at the top mm. um, of whichever organisation. Um, two, you do have to make the tough calls, um, and and you're not going to be liked by everyone, you know. And that that's just, it, it kind of comes with the territory with the role, doesn't it? You know. Yes. But that sounds like it was a very extreme situation yeah, that you had to deal with in terms of turnaround. I mean, that's like a massive turnaround. Yeah. That's not just tinkering at the edges, like right? no. what you've described. <laughs> so so you know, you, you talked a little bit about um, the press being mm. quite brutal <laughs> yeah. and, and maybe that affecting you know so because I'm, I'm sure it, it does affect you if you've been attacked publicly mm. for, for whatever reason um right or wrongly it, it, it is going to kind of you know stay with you for a certain certain degree so how did you manage that you know in terms of <laughs> yeah well one having to be out there as a public public figure leading <clears throat> that organization but then two you know Press can be brutal. I mean, it can get quite personal and quite, like you say, quite nasty. And, and you've got your friends and family and loved ones around you, you know, that are also affected by that. Yeah. So any tips for anyone that, that kind of might be facing some situation similar to that and how to how to best to deal with it? Yeah, it, well, I think one of the frustrating things for me with the press was that it was all about what had gone before. Mm. It wasn't about what was happening now and where the organisation was going. And even even three years in, it was still about the drama that I inherited and right. the constant whirlwind that was going on then. So I found it really frustrating and I got frustrated. You know, I, did, I was like, for God's sake, why don't you just want to talk about the great things that are happening? Look at these results these women are, are producing and you know, look at the growth. And it was never about that. It was always about the story, mm. you know, the scandal, the this, the that. And I was like, well, I wasn't even here. You know, so stop asking me about it because I wasn't here. I don't know. And I did get frustrated. And I think there's an element of <clears throat> um, depersonalizing yourself from it mm. where you are there as a figurehead, it's not about you. And actually a lot of the stuff that goes on around us daily isn't about us, you know, isn't about you as a person. And it took me quite a long time to separate that out. And, you know, there were there were there were other sort of challenges. I think, you know, social media was kind of, you know, was was there, it was established, etc. But it it really ramped up between if you think between, you know, just before the start of the pandemic, you know, social media was it was still, still incredibly <laughs> prominent, but you know, it was sort of really finding its feet, and there weren't really as many celebrities and things that were coming out saying I'm being abused online. This is happening, so it wasn't it wasn't as in the public conscious, and it was accepted that well, if somebody's the freedom of speech, they can say what they want. 
about you online, etc. Um, and and that I really struggled with because there were some nasty things that, mm. that went out online, and you know, and it was and it was constant for the full time that I was in that role. You know, so there's there's things in that space that I think I would handle very differently now. But I also think there's other parameters that have come in that now people would call it out more because it's not as it's not acceptable in mm. terms of you know just general decency really. Uh, so I, I would I'm uh, I would I would I would whoever whoever was having those challenges now it would be about just you know do do what you need to do professionally online but I would I pretty much would keep everything personal off offline mm, yeah um, that's a personal choice I have other people that say well that's not being you know that you're not being your authentic self and all of those things but I do think there's a level of uh, emotional intelligence around being your authentic self and your you know professional emotional intelligence as well which is you know that bit of well, this bit, this bit's for me and my family. That's yeah. not for public consumption. Yeah, hundred percent. It doesn't mean to say you're fair game for your whole life yeah. and everything to be opened up for you know for titillation and selling newspapers or whatever. So, no, that's really good advice. And and you're right because I think whatever role you're in, it's what you do. It's not necessarily who you are. Yeah. And and uh, I think you're right when, especially when I mean I've been guilty of it myself in my career where, you know. You become so consumed by the role um, or the organization and the brand that, that you can very easily lose yourself and you know I see people that have maybe been in an organization for a very long time and then all of a sudden they're not you know they're not required anymore or things shift and they come out and it's such a shock yeah. because it's become their whole identity um, and I think it's a really good piece of advice to, to try and separate the two you still bring your whole self to what you do of course yeah. you do but it's it's not who you are. It's what you do, um, and it's, it's yeah. That's, that's really good advice. So let's talk about the Prince's Trust because obviously you know amazing things going on with the organisation. This yeah. is this has got a hell of a legacy yes. with Prince Charles. You know behind it, setting it up in what year was it set up? The Prince's Trust. Uh, I think it was seventy six. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah, so sort of around there. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So you weren't even born. I was four. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, great organisation. Long history. Legacy. You've come into this role and with fire and energy and, and wanting to really make a difference. So for those that don't know the Prince of Trust, and most people will, but for those that don't, do you want to just highlight the, the kind of key things that the Prince of Trust does? Yeah, so essentially we're a youth charity, because that gets confused. So right off the bat, what are we? We are a youth charity. Yeah. Because we've got the Prince of Trust. Oh yeah, I kind of, kind of know what you do. What do you do? <laughs> we get that quite a bit. But, um, yeah, we're a youth charity. We work with young people between the ages of 11 and 30, which also catches people off guard. So, God, that's actually a really long uh, mm. a long span. Yes, it is. Uh, and we do, we do three things, essentially, which is help young people uh, either get into education, employment, or enterprise. So we have a, a, a plethora of programmes that sort of sit under each of those, those headings. So we will work with uh, young people that are probably the furthest removed from the jobs market uh, that need more one-to-one -one help and support, you know, just from simple things to, you know, uh, teamwork uh, and actually being able to turn up on time to things, um, to really engage, come out of their shell, build confidence, you know, so that we have those young people uh, that will come on our, what we call our Explore programme, which is about foundational skills. Uh, and then we'll have young people that will go on to our get into's or get started programs, which are get into um, construction, get into retail, uh, get started in digital, whatever whatever it is in terms of what their interests are. So we will have those uh, those programs that will then ultimately give them a, an employment outcome. 
uh, and we have uh, our enterprise programme as well, which is just remarkable for those young people that want to set up their own business. Uh, we will have, we do things like will it work grants or you know, sort of uh, five hundred pounds of chuck your idea at the wall, see what sticks. Let's see how we can create, you know, help you create your your business with that. Uh, and in Wales, we have a really strong ecosystem in that space. Uh, great uh, youth development leads that help those young people across all of those stages that I've just spoken about. Uh, that that provide you know basically one to one mentoring support. They'll take them through the programs. Um, and also we have a, a really strong volunteer network as well that will then support, particularly on our enterprise, you know, business mentors that will then stay with those young people for well over a 12 month uh, to ensure that their business is doing what it needs to do and are, uh, you know, moving along in the right direction. So uh, we, it sounds really corny, but we, we change lives on a daily basis and I see it on a daily basis in the centre when those young people come through the door. and. Uh, and it is a real, real privilege to have the role that I've got uh, and to see the difference that we make to those young people's lives. And you know, some of the, the, the young people that I talk to and some of the stories I read about where you just think, oh, well, how much difference can one development grant make? Uh, it makes a huge difference in, in, a, in a world that you can't understand because you're not in it. Uh, and the number of comments that we get back from young people about our youth development leads here that say, I, I couldn't have done it without, you know, without Dave, I couldn't have done this without Michelle, I couldn't, you know, the, the support that Lucy's given me has been phenomenal uh, and this has changed my life uh, and I'm now going into this job or I'm now going to start school or I'm now going to start, you know, uh, you know I'm going to go to university or whatever it is. Um, the outcomes are really tangible and these are young people that are going to, you know, contribute to society, are going to contribute to the economy in Wales uh, and are ultimately going to help make Wales you know, a better place. And it's, it's, a really, it's a really sobering role, it's a really, it's, it's, it's a, it is quite humbling in what we do and um, yeah, I, feel, I do feel very privileged in, in terms of what we do and the outcomes that, that we actually produce. Mm. I mean, it, it is like when you drop a pebble in a pond, isn't it? Yeah. That ripple effect, effect, you know, so for those young people that either, you know, get back into education, get a job or start a business, you know, and the, the, the future kids that they may have or the family around them and their friends, you know, so you're right, it's it's really fascinating and, um, and you must hear some really difficult stories as well because let's face it some kids don't have the best start in life and they have to deal with all sorts of situations whether it's abuse or you know absent parents or whatever it may be um how do you manage to deal with that side of it um because it must be you know you're trying to not get too emotionally involved presumably but it must be difficult when you're hearing some of the things that these young kids are having to deal with it is there's and there's no um i don't think there's a set mechanism for, mm. for sort of dealing with it but I think you know the the youth development leads and the managers that we have here are you know far closer to those young people than than, than I will be but you know they a lot of them are, ch are trained you know youth youth workers which gives them the skills and the ability to ensure that those young people are getting the right support but also to ensure that you know they're not getting too emotionally involved or yeah. too connected uh, and you're keeping that 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 relationship where it needs to be so um, I think one of the things I find the hardest is actually one of the best things about the job as well, which, which is <laughs> we have our annual Prince's Trust Awards where we reward and recognise you know, young people for their journeys and there's six or seven categories. 
and we will choose the winners from those categories with some of our main partners and sponsors. So whether that's L'Oreal, Google, you know, John Lewis, whoever it is that come in and you know, we all sort of sit there and talk through the young person journeys. And we're all given a certain slot within each category and we have to talk about that young person. So we have to have read and understood that journey and we each art articulate why that young person we feel should win the award. And without fail, I d there's never a dry eye in the house by, <laughs> by the end of the award shortlisting because you ultimately want to award everybody because their journeys are all amazing. And, and it's, it's one of the most difficult things. It's one of the most emotional things, but it's also one of the best things that we do, uh, where you then get to recognize these young people that have just done remarkable things based on where their start point was and where they are you know, at that current moment in time. So um, I don't think there is any mechanism. And I think if you, I think you can distance yourself from it too much, it kind of takes away yeah. the purpose. Absolutely. In fact, because like, I've uh, participated in, on the judging side of oh, things yes, of as well. Yeah. yeah, and it is. It's a very, very, it's a really tough, really mm. tough it to is. decide. And it, like you say, you know, everyone is, is as, as deserves the recognition. But of course, the nature of it means you can't, yeah. it sort of devalues if you don't, if you don't kind of um, have that, that, that award category and winners, etc. But yeah, I mean, listen, I think what you're doing is fantastic. And, and the trust is going to be rebranded, right? So yes. obviously Prince yeah. Charles, now King Charles. Um, so that's that's going to happen over the course of what the next sort of twelve months, or how long will that process take? Do you think? And will it will any what will anything fundamentally shift? Do you think as a result of that rebrand? Uh, no is the answer to the last bit. <laughs> uh, we are going to be exactly the same organisation, just with a slightly different name. We're just changing one word. Yeah. Uh, so we'll become the King's Trust. Uh, which is which is amazing, uh, you know, and and His Royal Highness is very engaged with the charity. It's it's his baby, um, and even since the coronation, whilst we don't see him personally as much, uh, he is still very involved as and when he can be in in sort of you know big strategic decisions for the organisation. So uh, that that sort of uh, proximity to him hasn't really really changed too much uh, from a UK perspective. And I think the rebrand, I think the last I heard it's probably going to take a good two years. So okay. it's it's a big, it's a big rebrand. So, you know, we're going to probably, uh, you know, you're not going to see much change in terms of the branding uh, anytime uh, soon. But um, yeah, it's it's a big thing because the Princess Trust Group also has Princess Trust International in there. The, you've got the Princess Trust Charity, the Princess Trust Group. So it's mm. a massive uh, rebrand to the King's Trust, which I think is exciting and, and you know, gives some, uh, sustainability and longevity, doesn't it, in terms of you know the next generation that come through after you know, King Charles? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I mean, you could be saying, oh well, hang on a minute, Prince Charles is now King Charles. Does that mean the charity disappears? Is that you know, and all of that? So I think it is really good that you know the message is very clear. Um, so yeah, exciting times ahead. And you know, being being in Wales versus mm. being in you know, you'll see other parts of your colleagues in in England, etc. Are there unique challenges, do you think, for Wales versus other parts of the UK? Mm. I mean, every 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 area will have its own unique challenges. I appreciate that. But just yeah. from, a, from a Wales point of view, what do you see as being the key differences and things that you have to navigate through slightly differently? Mm. Uh, there's a lot of answers for that one. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, it, it, 
But so the first the first thing I'd say is different. And you can argue Northern Ireland and Scotland, you know, it's devolved government. Yes. Uh, does make it different to the things that kind of uh, happen across England. I think the way that we deliver the trust is quite consistent and uniformed. And there's a reason for that, that you know, we want a young person that goes on any of our programmes in you know, Yorkshire to have the same experience as somebody that goes on a programme in North Wales or South Wales or wherever. So... Uh, there's a consistency in terms of how we deliver. I think the external parameters are different. Um, I think our, you know, the way, you know, for example, Wales, for example, we measure the index of multiple deprivation differently. So if you were going to try and measure data in terms of the young people that we're working with, you're actually not going from a level base in terms mm. of, uh, you know, how you measure those metrics. So that's just one one small thing. I think the public sector space is, is different in terms of how we draw down. Uh, you know, funding from public sector, Wales are traditionally, from the trust's perspective, the least supported by government. Uh, uh, you know, in terms of if you comparative to, to Scotland, England, and Northern Ireland, so that does present us with challenges in terms of how we bring you know funding in to support the young people of Wales. So there, there definitely are um, differences. I think Welsh language adds a different uh, a different slant mm. to it. Um, and in Wales, I think we're we're a great country, aren't we? I think you know we we have um, an ability to be really agile in Wales, and I think sometimes that gets hampered slightly by the wider mm. bit of the of the of the trust. You know, and there's pros and cons for it for sure. Um, but there are definitely uh, a, there's a strong network in Wales that can help, and you know we need that more than ever. When you look at you know the, the child poverty statistics, you know Wales are. You know, we've got the highest levels of child poverty uh, across the UK. Uh, that is a really challenging space for us to be in. And in order to, for us to be able to really positively impact that, we need the support of Welsh Government more than we currently have. You know, we need the support of philanthropic donors, of which we have some great ones. Um, but also the, the corporate sort of space in Wales. You know, we don't have loads of you know really big organizations you know we, we already work with that role which we're really grateful for you know um you know and we we will work with organizations that come from a centralized contract in london uh, but we really do need to move uh, in that sort of small sme space in yeah. terms of support for the trust in order for us to be able to really try and shift the down some of these child poverty measures that we're seeing and you know a lot of the stats that we're looking at post covid is that i think it's something like I think it's over 50% of young people and teenagers don't feel that they're ever going to recover from the effects of the pandemic and, and feel like they are hopeless in terms of what comes next. So unfortunately, the pandemic in Wales has really exacerbated those um, you know, the, the, the gaps in, um, in poverty and diversity and, and everything that we're trying to close. It has been exacerbated and we, we really need to work far more collaboratively and collectively across Wales in order to really help uh, shift the dial in that space. You know, we know there's 44,000 young people in Wales that need our help. Currently, we're able to reach 4,000, 4,500, so that the, the problem is, is huge. Yeah, yeah. Well, now it's interesting to understand the dynamics. And mm. So anyone that's listening to this that wants to get involved, either because they need some support um, as a young person or maybe you, you want to donate and, and be, you know help on the funding side, we'd like a bit more of that. Bring your cash, please, everyone. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> or, or indeed, if, if someone wants to get involved, you know, whether it's as an ambassador or helping on the mentoring side, what's the best way for people to engage either with you personally or with kind yeah. of Princess Trust in Wales? How can they track you down? Yeah, Princess Trust website. Just type in Princess Trust. 
it'll all come up. There's a, a Great Wales page on there. You can you can get hold of us. Uh, for me, I'm Sarah Jones. Nice and straight, nice and simple, straightforward. <laughs> uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm Sarah Jones uh, at um, at Sarah Jones TPT, the Prince's Trust on um, I was going to say Twitter X. Yeah. Uh, I'm not overly active on this. That might be your best route, but uh, LinkedIn. Uh, I'm I'm on there as well. But for anything to do Prince's Trust, go to our website uh, and you'll be, be directed uh, to the team wherever you are in the country, whether even if that's outside of Wales. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, because that's that's the thing. And and actually, you know, as a as a podcast, we're listened to in I think hundred and twenty plus countries now, Brave Bold Brilliant, which is phenomenal. So you never know, we might get some generous overseas um people that want to kind of um you know engage as well. So fantastic. So this year has been a challenging year for you in lots of ways, you know, and particularly, you know, you talked about, about your, your spinal surgery and, and just sort of, you know, obviously the challenges of, of being the director here as well and the opportunities that you've got. If you're going to describe this year in one word, Sarah, what would it be and why? Can I have two? One for personal, one for professional. I'll let you have two. Yeah, I don't normally, <laughs> but as it's one for each, that's fine. You can break the rules. You see, you're always disrupting, <laughs> <laughs> always pushing the boundaries. One extra, one. Can I have two? Yeah. You may have two. Go don't for get, it. You don't, you don't ask. You don't get. I agree. Um, uh, personally challenging. Uh, um, professionally successful. Wow. So yeah, two op- almost yeah. polar opposites, but yeah. combined. Yeah. Good. That is fantastic. So it has been, um, yeah, two sides of the coin yeah. for you, hasn't it? So, so. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And we're nearly at the end. So, you know, you've got, you've got through. So that, that is fantastic. And, you know, you'll look back over your career mm-hmm. in sports and in the charity sector and as a coach and, and actually just, just growing up with a happy family around you, you know. And can you think of any standout advice that you've received over the years? Yeah, there was one phrase that got said to me, it was years ago, um, and I have actually told my team this as well, and they kind of went, hmm, um, was that somebody once said to me, uh, Sarah, it's absolutely none of your business what anybody thinks of you. And it was like she smacked me across the face. <laughs> I was like, oh. Um, and uh, and I've re- that really stuck with me, because, and again, that's because I was a full, fully paid up member of the People Pleasing Club, and I was, I was like, I don't understand them. That it's absolutely none of your concern or business what anybody else thinks of you and it absolutely has stayed with me um, and has become a very real sort of living and breathing phrase I guess um, throughout my my life and how I how I think about things and how I approach things mm, fantastic that's no, great because we can get so concerned about what other people yeah. think what other people say and actually just crack on focus mm. on focus on what, what you're what you're doing but yeah, so, yeah great advice Fantastic. So the last question, if yeah. I may, uh, brave, bold, brilliant. What does that mean to you? Yeah, gosh, it can mean so many things. I think for me, uh, brave is is being out of your comfort zone. That's what brave is. It's it's constantly striving to be uncomfortable, which is a really weird thing to say. Um, for me, that's that's if you're not in that space, you're not growing. Uh, and I think you, you always have the choice of two doors, don't you? You have door one, which is the, uh, you know, path, the path that's easiest travelled, you know, less resistance, but less growth. 
and then you have door two that is the door of chaos madness uh, and uh, but where you will experience the most growth uh, probably and the most challenge as well so for me it's about the, the brave bit is being brave and really pushing yourself through door two <laughs> continually uh, um, bold is being brave enough and bold enough to go I'm enough I'm enough as I am I'm, I'm good enough and I think for women we struggle a bit with that um, that's that's where, and I think if you do both of those things you get the brilliance is kind of the uh, maybe unintended consequence fantastic well I hope it hasn't been too uncomfortable experience <laughs> for you and obviously you shared so much great insights advice hugely valuable thank so thank you very much it's been great I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review.